Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Well, good morning, Humanity Church. How are you doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. Hey, my name is Nathan Neighbor. I'm our lead pastor here, and uh, we just started uh, a series called Enhanced, where we're going through a book that I published uh, last February, and then the pandemic hit, and then we never talked about it again. So uh, I thought we'd, we'd jump in there. Before, before um, we go into the conversation this morning, I wanted to pause and recognize that this has been another hard week in our nation, and there have been uh, two police shootings, another mass shooting that took place, and I know there's a lot of different opinions and thoughts around that. And I know I've talked to many in our, in our black African-American community. There's a lot of mourning going on this week, understandably. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons that I've learned this last year uh, as we've gone through a lot. And one of the lessons that I think was so simple for me that has just stuck with me is to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep first. Um, and, and here's the thing is... There's always a time to talk about data and statistics and all that stuff. But I think if Jesus uh, just walked into the room and saw someone that was weeping or mourning, I don't know if he'd go to them and say, hey, let's talk about statistics and let's talk about data and let's talk about whatever. I just think he'd sit down and he'd mourn with them, you know? And so there's a time and a place for that. But I just wanted to acknowledge the mourning and the grieving and the overwhelm of this moment for for so many in our community. And I want to let you know that this is a space for you to be authentic with that and to be engaged in that. And I also believe that it's a space for us to seek God uh, in that space. And so I want to start out with that and to just pray for peace and comfort for those who are in that space this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you as our comforter, also the God of of reason and understanding and justice, as we've talked about over the last couple weeks. And so we ask, God, that those who are in our community that feel overwhelmed or in a space of mourning, God, that you would comfort them, God, that you would give us as a, a community just a, an extra dose of empathy before anything else, God, an extra, an extra filling of compassion, God, and connectedness before anything else, God. And I ask that your, um, your spirit would come quickly uh, to this earth, God, and fill it. Not to get us out of here, God, but to bring justice and peace and mercy and humility, as the prophet Micah says, God. And I ask that you would uh, comfort those of us who are in that space, God. And for those of us who also feel the overwhelm of just... I know there's so many families of police officers and, and, and in, this, in our community as well. God, I pray for peace and understanding there as well and that you would, in a miraculous way that feels so overwhelming, do something new. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
So we're in this conversation around faith, and, and we talked last week about how everyone has faith, that we've created this false dichotomy of, of people of faith and people who are not of faith. Every single one of us have faith in something. So faith is actually never the issue. It's never like, hey, how do I get more faith in me? The question that we have to be asking ourselves is, what am I putting my faith in, and is that actually getting the results that I'm looking for? See, faith alone is not enough to move us to the life that we were designed for, that may sound heretical, but uh, the scriptures would actually say, no, that there's enhancements that need to be made to your faith. Now, now, it is through faith, it is through grace and faith that we are connected to Christ, but then it is our job to supplement that faith, to enhance that faith with something that will move us towards the life that we were called to. Just like we supplement our food with vitamins and supplements, we are called to do the same thing with our faith. And, and we're going to jump into our first enhancement today, which is goodness. And here's the thing. I've noticed what makes faith difficult is when we perceive whatever we're attempting to put our faith in as untrustworthy or bad. So, so when we look out at something that we are supposed to put our faith in and we immediately perceive it with some degree of cynicism or distrust or like, hey, I don't know about this, it's going to be really difficult to put your faith into it. Now, I'm a bigger dude, if you haven't noticed, and I, I have learned this, uh, this very important skill as a bigger dude, and that is to assess folding chairs. And I can just tell you, whenever we go to a barbecue, whenever we go out, I'm like eyeing the folding chairs to find out which one, because I'm, like, I'm like, that one's going to collapse under me. I can just guarantee you, right? And I've learned, I've learned, because I can look at a chair and go, that's a bad chair. That is a rickety chair, not sitting in that thing, right? And it's really difficult. I mean, let me tell you, if I'm like, that chair is going to fall, I'm, I'm, I'm doing one of these, like, uh, right? Just like a slow and steady, maybe give it a few bounces, and then it's like, okay, I'm good, right? I remember a friend of mine, Ricky, a few years ago came to me and he said, Nathan, I have this incredible investment. You have to invest in it now. And I'm like, all right. He's like, this is going to return thousands of dollars on you. And I'm like, all right, Rick, tell me whatever it is. And he's like, you need to invest in the Iraqi monetary system. And I'm like, excuse me? He's like, no, no, no. If you buy Iraqi denarii, that, that you are going to be a millionaire. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, when I think about financial stability, I don't think Iraq, right? <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I'm going to pass. Needless to say, he lost a lot of money. Because when you perceive something to be bad or to be broken or to be untrustworthy, it's very difficult to put your faith into it. On the flip side, when you perceive something to be trustworthy or good or true, it's much easier to put your faith in. Well, when your perception of something is like, oh, hey, I can clearly see that this is going to have a return on investment, or this is going to be the thing that moves my life forward, or just I am certain beyond a doubt that when I put my faith in this thing, that it's going to move my life forward, it's so much easier. In fact, it'll, it'll lead you to do crazy things. I have the privilege of, of doing some leadership training with teenagers a couple times a year, and we'll take them out to a retreat center. And part of our week-long leadership training with them is they get to go on our high ropes course, and it's always awesome to see the kids out there on the ropes course because it's always like the confident young guys who are like, oh, I, I got this, I'm good. And then they get out there and we're like, all right, bud, put on your harness and get up there. They're like, oh, no, I've already done this before. I, I'm not even, I'm not scared, you know, but I, I don't need to do it. I don't need to do it, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, man, we, we got this. We got this. You're, you're good, right? And I always tell them like, hey, 
these ropes that we're on, these ropes that got you can actually hold up to an, like the weight of an airplane, right? Now, I'm, I'm like, I get it, you're big, but you're gonna be fine, right? You're, you're gonna be able to make it. It's gonna, it's gonna protect you. And I've gotten up on the ropes several times, and let me tell you, the only thing that I hold on to when I'm up there is, this can hold an airplane, this can hold an airplane, this can hold an airplane, because I just have to continually reinforce my perception that while it feels like I'm going to plummet to my death at any point in time, that it's going to hold me in the middle of this. See, for many of us, what gets in the way of our faith with God is our perception of how good, trustworthy, and noble he is. That's what gets in the way of our faith and us putting our our full, unbridled faith into him. And let's be honest, there's good reason for it. For many of us, we can look back through our lives and say, yeah, where was God here? And why didn't he intervene in this space? And why did he allow this thing to happen? And why did my life turn out the way that it did? It's easy to look inward at our story and go, where was God in that? And perceive him to be less than good. It's it's way easy to just look out at the world and go, where's God in this mess? Like, where is he showing up? And how on earth can you claim that he is good when all of this is taking place all around us all at the same time? See, faith in God seems like a very risky proposition at times. It's, it seems like sitting down in the rickety folding chair, putting all your money in a racky denarii, it seems like, hey, I don't know if this is going to actually move my life towards the space that I was supposed to be. And then, isn't it awful when you're going through something and then someone comes up to you and says, but you know what? God is good. Yeah. Right? That's almost like salt on the wound. <laughs> you're like, it doesn't feel like God is good. There's nothing about this that feels good right now in the middle of this. I'm not interested in that type of goodness. And have you ever even noticed in our culture, when things aren't good, we use this silly phrase of, oh, it's all good, right? Isn't that odd? Like things are falling apart, like, ah, it's all good. It's all good, right? Because we're trying to convince ourselves that maybe somehow this will be all good when it doesn't feel like it is at all. And here's the thing. Our ability to perceive goodness is intimately connected with our ability to lend our faith, our, our ability to see what is good in the world around us is intimately connected to our ability to put our trust in something bigger than ourselves. I, this is why one of the reasons why I love working with artists of all sorts, filmmakers, poets, painters, dancers, because uh, what I love about artists is that they make the invisible visible. They take something that they dreamed up in their mind or they, that was placed inside of them and they put it out on paper or canvas or stage or film and, and out of their essence, they create. Out of who they are, at the inside of them, the, the part of them, their soul, their, their character that we don't get to see, we suddenly make it visible. And so we can see what lives inside of us. What's inside of an artist always comes out. And this what I've noticed about artists is they have this amazing ability to feel at a very deep level and from that comes out. And you can see when what lives inside of an artist is a lot of darkness and brokenness and hopelessness, it comes out in their art. There's really no other option. And when an artist lives from a place of hope and beauty and and also a sense that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel, you see that coming out of their art as well. But here's the thing that I do know about artists, and I've coached and worked with a lot of them over the years, is that they cannot create something that doesn't come from the inside of them that they cannot muster something up that doesn't actually live within them. There will always be a level of integrity between what's inside and what comes out of them. And what I know to be true about God is that he is first an artist. 
That's the first image that we see of him in Genesis 1. And from his essence, his, he creates. So I want to go to this passage in Genesis 1 that we go to often, but I want to read through this passage, long passage. But I want you to hear the essence of God coming out as he's creating It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the next day. Then God said, let there be a vault between the waters and separate waters from water. So God made the vault and separated water under the vault from the sky above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land, dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, seed trees on the land that bear fruit with its seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them into the vault of the sky to give them to the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate the night from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which water teemed and moved about it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters and the seas and the birds increased on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground. And there were wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our own image our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created God, blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature on the ground. And then God said, I give every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seeds in it. They will be yours for food and to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it. I give every green plant for food and it was good. And God saw the earth that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, sixth day. If you didn't catch it, God cannot create anything other than what is good. Because at his essence is goodness. And so, like an artist, from his essence, he takes the invisible and makes the visible. And in this space, he took the invisible essence of who he was, his goodness, and he made it visible in everything else around it. Then he looks at humanity and he says, it is very good. And this is how God defines us. 
See, love and goodness are like cousins with one another. And of course, God is love. When we talk about love, of course, we're talking about this agape love, which is God's unending, uh, unending, there's nothing that started it, there's nothing that stopped it, there's no limitations on it, there's no conditions on it, it just flows freely. And so God cannot create anything other than good, and everything that is made from love, everything that is made from his agape will always be good. It is impossible for him to create anything because of his essence that is not good. And because of that, God creates these environments that are fueled by love that are good. Now, here's the thing that we do know, that in order for for love to exist, in order for an environment that is both good and fueled by love, freedom has to be at the forefront of everything. You have to have freedom. You have to be released to make your own choices, to do what you're going to do. In order for love to exist in any situation, freedom has to exist. See, wouldn't it be nice if you could just make someone love you? I talk to a lot of young men, a lot of young single men who are in this space where they're looking for for a spouse and they're looking for someone and they always find that one girl that's never interested in them and they just, they they like pound at it, right? (laughs) They're just like, and, and and usually I'm like, bro, you can't make her love you. And he's like, I can try. I I promise you, I can try, right? And I'm like, she's told you like three times she's not into you, all right? And he's like, no, 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 I I can do it. And and eventually, once he gets beaten down enough, it's like, yeah, okay, I give up. It would be nice to just have like some type of potion or some ability to say, to make someone love you, but it's just impossible because in order for love to exist, there has to be freedom to exist. I remember early on when, when Jackson was just a little guy, one morning I woke up, it was just him and I, Marlo was out somewhere, and, and uh, I said, hey, I'm going to make you a special breakfast. I'll make you anything you want for breakfast. And he said, I want blueberry pancakes. We happen to have blueberries in the freezer, and I could make pancakes, so we're good. And I said, all right, buddy. So I whipped up blueberry pancakes. They were awesome blueberry pancakes. I get them all ready. I get them down to the table, and I sit down, and he says, I don't want you to feed them to me. I want mom to feed them to me. And I'm like, you ungrateful little, no, you know. <laughs> I'm like, dude, no, I, it's daddy, it's daddy Jackson day, right? I made you the blueberry pancake, so I get to sit here and, no, I don't want you. And I'm like, no, buddy, listen, listen. And then he starts crying, right? And I'm reasoning with him, like, hey, hey, remember, I, I'm, I'm cool too, right? Like, I'm, I'm like the cool dad, so, so we can hang out, and I'll be just as good as mom. I'll go put on a wig or something, whatever we need to do. And he was not having it. He, he would not have it. And no matter what I did, no matter how much I put into it, no matter how much I engaged him, he was like, no, I want mom. And I was trying to do everything in that moment to get him to accept me, to love me. And it just wasn't happening. (laughs) See, for love to exist, the object of your love has to be given choice. Otherwise, it's coercion. And no one likes to be coerced into anything. And it's illegal. (laughs) But God gives Adam and Eve all of this goodness. He sets them up in this perfect environment. And then he says this to them in Genesis 2, 15. He says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, see, here's the thing. God tells them, do not, you can do anything you want. Just this one tree, you cannot eat the fruit from that tree, right? 
I mean, talk about God setting up Adam and Eve in an environment where there are literally endless possibilities for life. There are endless possibilities for goodness. There are endless possibilities to engage a number of life-giving choices, and all of those choices would move them towards beauty, and there's just one teeny tiny little choice out of all of them that was going to move them towards death. Talk about heaven on earth. I mean, could you imagine if you woke up this morning and you just knew that every single decision you made was going to move you towards wholeness? Every single decision that you made was going to move you towards beauty and towards life you're going to live. You could do whatever you wanted, right? I mean, if I was Adam, I'd be like, great, we're going to jump off a cliff today. We're just going to see what happens, right? We're just going to go do it. We're going to jump off a cliff, see what happens. We're going to go grab some poisonous snakes and see what happens with that. We're going to go ride a tiger, right? I'm just like, because every, there's nothing. They're like, he's like, no, nothing will kill you. You're invincible. Please, just, uh, I'm just asking you, do not eat this one fruit of the tree of knowledge and goodness. Could you imagine this? It was literally all good, except for this one decision. And this is the environment that God created for them. See, today, we literally live in a death trap, Right? Now, it takes a lot of faith to get out of your door. Now, coronavirus has made us keenly aware of our, our mortality, right? It has made us keenly aware that, that we are not going to live forever. But, you know, there's all kinds of crazy statistics that when you look at them will inform you about the death trap that we live in. Do you know you have a 1 in 88 chance of dying in a car accident when you leave from here? Now, none of you are like, okay, gosh, I'm selling my car, right? <laughs> Do you know that you have a 1 in 649 uh, a, like chance of dying just as a pedestrian walking around your neighborhood? Did you know that there's a one in 70, 171 chance that you will fall and die today? I mean, look, you just walk out your house. You, no, no, no. You wake up and you are walking in a death trap. And so we find ourselves filled with all kinds of dangerous choices. But God, with Adam and Eve, he set this thing up with like, everything's fine. One little choice. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that I'm asking you to not do. Now, this actually reveals God's heart for humanity and God's plan for humanity, that God actually set up the world to be in humanity's favor. He actually set up the world so that we would thrive and for goodness to reign in our story, to maintain this perfect relationship with him, this perfect relationship with one another, to live out our purpose of love. This sounds so good, doesn't it? This sounds like heaven on earth. Now, even the choice, even the, the one little choice that he gives them of like, eat everything you want, not this tree over here. See, it's not like he was trying to hide goodness from them, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He wasn't trying to keep something from them. See, because here's the thing. This tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they had known goodness. In fact, all they had known was goodness, So they already knew half of what this tree had to offer. They already knew nothing but goodness in this equation. See, this choice was actually protecting them, not from the knowledge of goodness, but from the knowledge of evil. He he wasn't worried about them gaining some type of wisdom or understanding that they didn't have. He was basically saying, I just do not want evil to enter the human story because I have set this up so perfectly for your future. See, this choice to eat of this fruit wasn't some random test. It wasn't to see how loyal they would be to him and to see if they were going to betray him or not. He was basically saying, I would prefer that this be the human story. I would prefer that this be your normal. 
I would prefer that evil not be the defining characteristic of who humanity is. See, it is a simple lie that God is not for you. It's a lie that he hadn't set everything up for our favor. He actually set up the universe to conspire in your favor so that you might actually move forward. See, God, even in this beginning scene, is not setting up the stage for death. He's actually setting up the stage for life for Adam and Eve in this space. Now, of course, in this narrative, Eve is tempted by the snake and she eats from the tree. And then Adam, of course, follows suits. We know the story in there. And they choose, they chose to alter the good reality that God had set up for them, that God had created them. And for the first time in human history, evil enters the human story. For the first time, they had known what it means to be evil and what evil was. That In that moment, they lost their innocence and their purity. And as a result of this, this happens in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to the woman, What is it you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. Sorry, women. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. And the, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the grounds from which he had taken. And after he had drove out the man, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. See, death enters the human story by their choice. And now every single human being is repulsed by death. That there is something inside of us that bristles against the fact that we have limited time on this earth. It echoes to our origins that this is not how it should be. I did a funeral yesterday, and it's amazing how at every single funeral, there's, there's weeping. Because people inherently know this is not the way it should be. This is not how families are supposed to end. This is not how life is supposed to end But see, in this moment, God knew that humanity was now marked by both goodness and now evil. And it meant that now, not only could goodness live forever, but now evil could live forever. And so death became the consequence for our disobedience, but then death also became the mechanism by which God would interrupt evil. Could you imagine a human trafficker living forever? Could you imagine a murderer who wanted to take out entire groups of people living forever? Could you imagine our own evil on this planet living forever as is? And God could not allow that type of evil to become immortal. 
to allow our world to spiral out of control with no end in sight for the people committing evil. So now humanity has an expiration date as to how much evil it can create on the world around us. Now, if we pause here, it would seem like God's masterpiece is ruined. And most of our response would be anger, frustration, resentment towards man, this overwhelming feeling of betrayal. Could you imagine God in this moment? Like, I set you up, right? Like, you literally had millions of choices and you chose the one thing. I can imagine how angry and frustrated and resentful it was. At best, it would merit like a do-over, right? Like, hey, let's just, let's just mulligan this and go again, right? But, but that's not what he does. But because God is good and there is nothing but goodness that can come from agape, he keeps going. And he keeps going and he keeps going and his response is love and compassion and patience. And yes, there are some consequences in there, but he keeps going so goodness can eventually reign. In fact, the entire arc, the entire narrative of the scriptures, if you were to boil it down, could be summed up as a good God pursuing a humanity that is committed to choosing less than the goodness that we were designed to live in. And just him pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and us continually choosing less than what's available to us in any given moment. And because of all of this, it's easy to look out around the world and to grow cynical. It's easy to look out at what's taking place all around us and to grow jaded towards God, cynical towards faith, towards the future. See, when we find ourselves in cynicism, we are prematurely disappointed with the future. And we find ourselves stuck in the middle of that. We look at this broken world and it no longer appears good. I'm always shocked when people are like shocked with how broken this world is. <laughs> it's, it's always like amazing. Things happen and I'm like, what did you expect? I don't accept it. But it's like, this is actually what's promised to us. It's funny even when people talk about how, how broken the system of the church is. I'm like, yeah, I get it. He puts people together who are broken, and you expect the thing to work perfectly? Have you seen your own biological family, right? And then he says, let's put all those families together and knit them as one, and let's see what mess we can make, right? It it actually should be a surprise when things go well. It should be not a shock when things start falling apart or when things start breaking down. But what I love is that the goodness of God keeps going. The goodness keeps pursuing, the goodness keeps moving, and that's the beauty of goodness. Like love, it endures. But here's the thing, it all starts with our willingness to see it. It all starts with our willingness to perceive it, to actually think it. I, I think this is why when, when Jesus performed miracles, more times than not, he asked the people that he was healing, do you want to be healed? I mean, I I love this passage in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let me just pull this up real fast. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Jesus has this moment where it says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was in Jerusalem a sheep gate, uh, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which was surrounded by five covered colonnades. He had a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? 
which seems like a silly question, right? 38 years paralyzed in this place, but notice his response. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always gets in ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. See, you would think that when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He would just instantly be like, yes, please. What, what, yes, I want to be healed. I, I absolutely would love to walk. But that was not the case. And here's the thing. So often it is not the case. See, when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He comes back with an excuse as to why he hasn't been healed over and over and over and over again. See, God's question to him really was not, do you want to be healed? His question to his, can you see the possibility for healing? Can you see the possibility for goodness, even in a circumstance that looks like complete evil? What he's actually saying is, will you lay down your cynicism for a moment to see it? Will you lay down all of your jadedness and all of the internal conversations or how this is not going to work and this is going to be another opportunity where I get let down? And for many of us, we do the exact same thing. We've just identified with the pain of this life and the injustice of this life, and that's all that we can see. It's just like a filter. It doesn't allow us to see anything else, and we've lost our willingness, not ability, our willingness to see the goodness and believe in it again. Because let's be honest, we believed and we were let down, right? We trusted and we were betrayed. We opened our heart only to have it crushed again. It's just easier to believe in the corruption and the dishonesty and the cruelty and the abuse. And this just becomes, this becomes so problematic in, in two ways. One, it destroys any chance we have of moving forward into a faith journey. But because we identify with that corruption and the dishonesty and the cruelty, it becomes the context that we start creating from. And so we perpetuate the problem by becoming corrupt, by becoming dishonest, by becoming cruel. It's called bitterness. And the longer you sit in that and allow it to inform your perspective, the more you become like the people whom you are bitter towards. See... God never promised that all things would be good. Never promised that. In fact, he actually promised the opposite. He actually says, you will have trouble. But this is what he does promise. In Romans chapter 8, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, because we live in a broken and fallen world, Not everything will be good in your life. I'm sorry if some pastor told you that or if some televangelist promised you that everything would be good in your life. But what you can know is that God is in the process of working things together for good. And I know that sounds so cheesy. I know that sounds like a a cheap motivational phrase, but I don't know how else to see the world that would actually bring life than that. See, he's in the process of returning us to Eden. He's in the process of returning us to this environment where goodness became the norm, not the exception in life. See, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not yet the end, says Patel, the hotel manager of the best exotic Marigold Hotel. 
And what I love about this, this perception that God is attempting to give us, this, this filter of goodness that he's asking us to see the world through, is that it creates a certain invincibility in life. That if there is an assurance that goodness will be the end result of our stepping out in faith and risking big and God calling us into that, then we become unstoppable. We become an unstoppable force when we allow goodness to determine how we see the world. And when we add goodness to our faith, it creates an assurance of the future that we are stepping into. See, goodness informs your ability to see beyond what's in front of you and what was behind you. It's the underpinning of hope. In any given situation, it allows us to see there is always, always, always hope. But at first, we have to see it. And this is why God is constantly asking, can you not see it? Because it's there. You just have to be willing to see it. About four years ago, me and Tim Concio, who led us in worship today, were sitting at Mi Cafecito, having some coffee just down the street, and we were chatting it up, and while we were there, this guy walks into the coffee bar, and he comes up to me, and he says, your name's Nathan, right? And I said, yes, my name's Nathan. Uh, and he said, I, I know your name, but I don't know how I know you. And so I start going through a list of like, hey, have you been to Humanity Church? Have you been to, you, or you work around downtown Pomona? Do you, have you been to like a training before? You, maybe we have mutual friends we go through. And he goes, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I was walking and I heard a voice inside me say, that guy's name is Nathan and you need to go talk to him. And so he, he walks into the coffee shop and says this bold thing, hey, your name's Nathan, I'm supposed to talk to you. And I said, awesome. Well, I think that God sent you to me so that we could have this conversation. What would you like to talk about? And he said, I, I moved here from Mexico to take care of my aunt who was sick. And it turns out that she took advantage of me. She wasn't actually sick. And I got here and she took me for all my money. And now I'm here. And I used to be a fashion designer and, and I, I, I've lost everything. And I just don't, I don't know how to move forward. I, don't, I can't see straight. I don't know what's going on. I, I feel like I'm lost. And I said, oh, that's perfect. What God did was he sent you here. He sent you from Mexico to here. And he did not design you to go through this. But then he sent you to this coffee shop and told you my name so that we could pray together and you could connect to the God of peace. And that we could then find some way out from this. And Lazaro just started tearing up. And I just told him, God must love you so much. Not because of me, but to create this crazy scenario so that you could experience a level of goodness in who he is that wasn't available to you a moment ago. And we prayed together and, and Lazaro became a part of our community group and I spent several days with him. He worked at La Quinta Inn just over by the Cal Poly Pomona cleaning rooms at night and I would go over there and we would talk and I bought him some medicine as needed and he became a connected part of our community and part of our family. And as I got to know Lazaro's story, he, he was actually a, a very famous fashion designer from Mexico. He designed robes for Muhammad Ali when he boxed. He, he, he would make the president's suits when he was there. He, he had an incredible ability to see fashion. And he, he's actually back in Mexico now, in Quintana Roo, there and. And just the other day, he sent me a, a video where he was 
being interviewed by a, a large, like, kind of like our, our version of Good Morning America in Mexico. And uh, they were interviewing him on, on how he was now designing clothes and how he was getting back on his feet and how his life had been turned around because of Jesus. See, here's the crazy thing, that if God was willing to put some weird white guy in Pomona with a fashion designer from Mexico who meets at a Latino coffee shop in downtown Pomona to both transform his life but also to inform me of what's possible through faith, that can only be explained by a God who is attempting to reveal his goodness in the world around us. See, if you're going to fully engage this journey of faith, it starts with your enhancing your faith with goodness and, and, and being willing to lay down the cynicism and lay down all the other filters just to believe that there is goodness available because of a God who is good. Retraining yourself to believe that What's in front of me may not be good, but I know that there is a God behind the scenes that is working things out for good, that God has created a world designed for you to move forward into the woman or man that you were actually designed to be, to, to resist that internal urge within all of us to give into the darkness, to the cynicism, to the disappointment, to, to the injustice around us. This is why the cross became so cynical, so critical to the movement of Jesus. See, because it's one thing for God to come and to give several motivational speeches, like a Tony Robbins, right? It's another thing for God to come, share several motivational speeches, and then say, and now I'm willing to sacrifice myself completely for you. There's a difference between those two. It's another thing for God to talk about his goodness. It's another thing for him to demonstrate it. That he was willing to send his son to walk through the depths of evil, to take on all of our brokenness, to be crucified for us, and to bring goodness back into the human stories in one of the most destructive moments in human history that we talked about at Easter. And then he invites us as we connect to him and see the world through this new perspective to do the same. To walk into the darkness and declare light, to walk into the hopelessness and declare hope, to walk into the chaos and the injustice and to declare that beauty is available, that only comes when you are connected to a God who is good. See, following Jesus into faith is a proposition to come and do the same, to come and to die to our own brokenness, but also to our own perspective, to bring on the perspective that everything may not be good right now, but it will be in the end because of who God is. And to see how a good God is always in the process of bringing us back to life. Let's pray. Jesus, I just, I confess how often my own perspective and my own view of the world around me is so informed by cynicism. How the second I turn on the news or open my social media or see what's going on around me, God, I'm instantly overwhelmed by darkness. 
and how easy it is to lose sight of you. Not declaring things good, but working things together for good. And God, I, I just pray right now a, a prayer over our community and those watching online. God, that you would give us the courage to see anew, God. To dare to believe in goodness again. Not because it's just a, a nice thing to consider, not because it's just another mantra that we say, but because of who you are, God. And that we would be a people that declare goodness everywhere because it, it so lives within us. And God, I ask that for those in the room that are struggling, God, with the overwhelm, the cynicism, the disappointment, the betrayal, God. Maybe there are places of own, their own darkness and, and just hopelessness, God. I pray that you would grant them grace today to see. God, would you remove any other voice, any other filter, any other window through which they're seeing the world that, that you would grant them just a moment to see the goodness that is attempting to break through all around us because of who you are. And this morning, if you've not yet connected to Jesus, if you've not yet decided to follow his way, this is an opportunity to, to do that right now. And it's really just a moment to lay down your own ways of doing things and your own sense of self and to take on a new perspective. But bigger than that, to connect to a God who has already created a world in which he wants to flood you with goodness and hope and love. And so if that's you this morning and maybe you haven't connected to Jesus in a long time or maybe for the first time, this is your opportunity. And if you're online, you can just follow along with this. If, if you want to connect to Jesus, you can just click that button that says, I'm following Jesus. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can just type in Jesus in the comments. We'll know what that means. And I just want you to, to say a prayer. It's a confession, really. It's a declaration of a perspective shift. And I, you can just pray this with me. It's not magic words. It's just you declaring, dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I am broken and that you came and you died and you came back to life so that I could live. And things may not seem good right now, but I know that you are a good God who will work things for good. And so I make you my Lord. I give you all of me in exchange for your life and your perspective. And I declare that it is all good. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. 
Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.